0: Hi, I'm Dr. Kevin Cheng, founder of Asana, a health service dedicated to transforming lives through prevention. Over the years, I have reflected with colleagues on what we wish people did so they can avoid pain, surgery or developing a chronic disease. Often the answer lies in embracing a proactive mindset and putting healthy lifestyle practices into action. By doing this, the upside is not only better health but also saving us time, money and stress in the long run. In this podcast, I'm joined with my friend Saxon Piggott to chat with a new health expert each week. We'll cover practical ways to look after ourselves, how to prevent illness, and ways we can be inspired to live well. Welcome to Prevention Hacks, the weekly conversation where we go to health experts for advice, so you don't have to. Welcome to Prevention Hacks, and today we've got uh, Rosemary Clancy. Uh, Welcome, uh, Rose, to our podcast. You're a clinical psychologist with the Sydney uh, Clinic, also a sleep psychologist with Sydney Sleep Centre, and you're a director of uh, Let Sleep Happen, which is a great website with uh, lots of online resources and services. Uh, So welcome, Rose, to our podcast. Thank you uh, so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, So let's maybe start with, what is the sleep challenge for Australians? Is there, as a GP, I hear sleep and and not getting good sleep, uh, perhaps insomnia, sleep issues such as sleep apnea being quite a common issue. Um, At a macro level, um, do we have an epidemic of insomnia, particularly during a pandemic?
1: Look, and, uh, at any given time, uh, even without a pandemic circumstance, it's said that w- the the rate of insomnia can be as high as 48% of the population, depending on the criteria used uh, for um, diagnosing. So, you, but during the pandemic, there's been a number of studies done and uh, around uh, various countries that are suggestive that there's been quite an upswing in insomnia uh, because of, especially during COVID isolation and, um, and, and you know, fear about the unknown and fear about the future. So, I mean, for instance, uh, Charles Moran, uh, the Canadian researcher and Julie Carrier uh, were reporting in uh, June in sleep medicine journal about um, 5,400 um, uh, adults whose sleep was self-reported uh, for the first few months of COVID, and then they were also asked to self-evaluate the sleep in the last three months of 2019, and they were suggesting that uh, 37%, there'd been a 37% increase in the rates of clinical insomnia uh, from 146 to 20% in that population from before to the peak of the COVID pandemic, so uh, especially uh, healthcare workers um, with even higher rates of insomnia, 34 to 36 percent anxiety and depressive symptoms, up to 50 percent there, um, you know, amongst healthcare workers related to the in relation to the general population. Um, so you know, it's it's really with symptoms. Of anxiety, depression, and sleeplessness, worse amongst frontline workers. Is, Is
2: that overwork?
1: Right? Look, I mean that that could be part of the picture, uh, especially in healthcare workers uh, with longer shifts and uh, and and sudden changes in shifts uh, and rostering because of COVID testing. I mean, frequent COVID tests and isolation and, until the results come in. But yeah, generally. There's a great deal of, you know, fear um, that it is actually quite um, understandable, given the situation. And, you know, given you only have to look at the amount of PPE that's being used in hospitals to see that, you know, there is a, a significant threat to health. So and and people are responding to that. Uh, you know, with, in the best way they know and, and one of those ways that they respond is indeed good problem-solving. Uh, unfortunately, the brain doesn't, if it's if you're a good problem-solver as a healthcare worker, your brain doesn't necessarily want to turn off at night and so your frontal lobe is still very much activating and, you know, thinking of ways that you could stem potential harm coming up, uh, you know, in, in the days ahead or weeks ahead. So... You know, it, it especially seems to hit good problem solvers. And that's something we'll talk about in a short while.
0: The the importance of sleep is well established. And we remember back to, um, well, for me, uh, even during clinical training as, as a doctor, you're taught that if you're not sleeping for, you know, 18 hours or more, it's almost like a level of intoxication um, mm-hmm. where you can't, you know, um, drink or drive, uh, you can't coordinate, have executive uh, uh, function. And so, and, and what you're saying is, you know, 48%, even pre-COVID, obviously reacting to pandemic and the world of uncertainty that we live in at the, at the moment. But it feels like, Rose, that, you know, there are lots of other factors at play that perhaps has been contributing to sleep disturbances uh, for, for, you know, Aussies. Uh, for some time now. We live we live busier lives. There's more screen time and blue light associated with that. Um, and we're trying to fit so much into our busy lives that coffee. perhaps I wonder whether sleep is coffee, whether sleep is a trade-off. And that's been making uh, an impact over, over the years.
1: Look, I, I think that's true. I mean, Matthew Walker and uh, the neuroscientist was suggesting that Sixty to seventy percent of people have a difficulty getting to sleep on at least one night a week every week, and you know. So he's reporting on UK and American populations, and this is, you know, in uh, in in industrial societies there there is this pressure to you know be productive, uh, keep problem solving, just keep keep working, um, notwithstanding that our our brain is readying us for sleep at night, and it is producing melatonin in a bid to try to help us get to sleep.
2: So, how do you switch off if, if you're a problem solver who's still solving problems in your head involuntarily? How do you um, how do you turn off at night?
1: Yeah, look, this is there are a lot of uh, excellent sleep hygiene measures that are. Uh, Help you with both uh, sleep environment, like bed situation, uh, uh, the environment, the uh, of, you know the temperature, the noise level, uh, the darkness level, uh, and also lifestyle changes uh, that can be conducive to sleep. Uh, and so it's there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, uh, and. And so, one of the first things we check on when someone comes in with insomnia is just core sleep hygiene measures. How well they'll follow, they, they follow, they follow them, and and if they're just not aware of these things, uh, though that's very few people. Most people are aware of sleep hygiene measures. Um, we, we help them with sleep hygiene.
0: What would be your top three tips uh, for? Yeah. Adults? So
1: uh, look, basically, I, I'd say get up at the same time every day and get sunlight. You know, I mean, there's nothing more reassuring for your brain to have a regular waking time, notwithstanding the quantity or quality of sleep. So even if you had a sleepless night, please try and get up at the same time and get sunlight. Sunlight is our, our circadian rhythm is the most uh, uh, the effective tool for re-synchronising our sleep. 82 percent of our body's tissues has a circadian rhythm according to Dr. Jan Dijk over at Surrey University in the UK. Uh, we really are solar-powered creatures. you know we depend on the sun to not only stop our sleep in the morning but also put us to sleep at night. So uh, it's so important for our mood. if we get up at the same time and get sunlight in the morning each morning it not only resets our circadian clock but also resets our mood. And our serotonergic neurotransmission, our our mood neurotransmitter, is optimized by getting that sunlight in the morning.
0: I love that term, being solar-powered creatures. I might use that for my kids when they want to stay up past their
1: bed. So apart from that, uh, the the second one would be no no naps during the day. What we want to try and do is... uh, it, you increase the pr- the sleep pressure to take you know the, what we call homeostatic sleep pressure, which is like a big wave of pressure building up during our waking hours during the day uh, that will then take us down pretty quickly into slow wave sleep or deep sleep within about 40 minutes at night. So if we have a substantial nap during the day that is over 30 minutes, then we may be borrowing uh, some of that deep sleep from the night's sleep uh, because after we go past about the 30 minute mark 40 minute mark with a nap we start to we go into deep sleep and our brain just really wants to go through a whole cycle of sleep so um, and that's you know, perhaps a 17 to 90 minute cycle but you might find that your sleep onset that night is a bit later or your sleep might be more fragmented if you go to bed at the same time and then get frustrated that you can't fall asleep on, on uh, demand uh, so yeah if if you can uh one so so not having naps during the day is definitely if someone has insomnia that's where we, we start getting up at the same time every morning getting sunlight no naps during the day the final thing that i think is really important is just keeping our expectations realistic about sleep um i have people come in with fitbits who are uh looking constantly looking at the graphing there's even a word for this now called orthosomnia which is correct sleep and people uh, it's it involves people getting quite uh, obsessive about the fitbit data and trying to maximize their deep sleep now deep sleep really is only about 13 to 23 percent of the night's sleep uh and and our brain regulates that beautifully, right? If we've had uh, been awake for a sufficient number of hours during the day, our brain will, you know, prioritize getting that deep sleep. And it always happens at the beginning of the night, uh, whether you fall asleep at 11 PM or 2 AM. And our brain will ensure that we get the deep sleep we need uh, if we give it enough opportunity. Uh, So, we don't need to circumvent or control or you know maximise deep sleep. I mean, we don't we don't actually have to have a part in it. Once we try to take control of our sleep, then we start up a hypervigilance vigilance uh, processes that kind of keep our attention on uh, during the night and keep us so looking in on our sleep. Oh, sorry, Saxon. I was going
2: to say, so it's counterintuitive if you're getting worked up.
1: Yeah, that's to get right.
2: Sleep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the moment we try to step in and control it, thinking, well, my brain obviously can't do this very well. I'm going to step in and see what I can do to control it with either my, my own measures or, you know, uh, uh, checking in or medications. Uh, then, then the moment we try to control it, we start to potentially start, start up performance anxiety about sleep. You know, it, it starts a hypervigilance process that can backfire by creating a need for us to control it more. Uh, and and it starts to register in us a, a distrust of our brain's capacity to self-regulate sleep. Uh, and it just seems to be the most common thing that I'm seeing in people with insomnia. So we try to unwind that. Effectively, in the end, we're trying to get people to ignore their sleep, knowing that their brain will take care of it beautifully in the background. That so seems enemies. be... <laughs> you could say that, just in terms of Look, especially if we're we're used to taking control uh, in the work situation during the day, we're good problem solvers. We just, you know, why would the brain stop at night then? And especially if you take your work home and you're you're doing, and even more so if you're doing uh, work activities in your bed environment, uh, your brain will just say, well, you know, we, we just keep working during the night. That's what the frontal lobe does. Its job is to generate thoughts and problem solve.
0: So really practical tips. So regular time, get out during the day. Don't take naps. You know, build up that sleep drive, that wave, uh, pressure, and uh, make make sure that you don't um, get too hung up on it. So you can relax both your mind as well as as well as your body. And just for those that would be wondering about medications and perhaps even turning to alcohol as a sedative, um, I'm you know I think the evidence rose. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is you don't get good quality sleep if you just sedate yourself.
1: Mm. Look, I mean, it, it's uh, I, I see where people are going with it, and this is actually one of the um, the barriers to improving sleep over time because there once people uh, see the sedation that they have with alcohol, and to people, and also to medications, especially long acting ones, where it really looks like. Uh, they can sleep the whole night and it looks like they have no waking, which people with insomnia come to see as abnormal. And that's one of the myths that I'll be, that is we talk about a little bit further on Um, because if, if people grow to distrust that their brain can self-regulate sleep and because it wakes during the night, and this is completely normal. Most of the time we, we wake and we don't remember it. Good sleepers They wake, they don't remember, they just remember sleeping all the night through. But if we come to distrust that and see that as normal, then we may try to blot out those those waking times. And because if we have insomnia, we'll prime those and we'll see them as threatening and we'll remember them the next morning. So one of the things that medication in particular is good at, because it causes anterograde amnesia, is uh, if, if we're talking... Uh, benzodiazepine medications, in particular, uh, and also to a certain extent, ben, uh, BZRAs or Z-drugs, like still still So these are the sleeping um,
0: tablets that you can get, you know, on prescription that that you know patients might come see us.
1: Yeah, so, one of the things they're really good at is um, disrupting the laying down of new memory, so that you can't recall the waking periods during the night. Now that's enormously relieving for people who fear waking periods during the night. So they want to have more of that. And so what happens is we get an attribution shift where we start to think along the lines of, well, my brain can't do sleep, but maybe the medications can see I have deep sleep all night um, on this medication. And that's what I've been yearning for no waking periods. So, it's, it's the way we perceive it or we construe it for ourselves um, that really creates a, a lasting attribution shift that makes it very hard to come off medications and trust our own brain's processes in self-regulating sleep.
2: So a bit of an over But it can be done.
1: Yeah, so that's right. I mean, so what we do is while we're doing an insomnia, CBT or cognitive behaviour therapy, treatment, we would be simultaneously seeking to taper, start a very gradual tapering uh, program so that someone can avert panic and slowly shift their attributions back to, yes, my brain does know what it's doing and it can self-regulate sleep.
0: It sounds like one of the messages um, is that we can treat it, we can improve insomnia. and, And as you say, some of these practical tips around lifestyle routines and behaviours can be put in place uh, with the right supports. One question would be, Rose, what what are the common barriers that you see or reasons why people fail to get improvements in their sleep? And how do we overcome these barriers?
1: Yes, well, I mean, one thing that we, all tend to do if, you know, as part of the problem solving, of course, is is what we call um, safety seeking actions uh, that are meant to try and make the situation better and get us more sleep, uh, but they end up making the situation worse. And one of the main ones is uh, catching up on sleep in the morning. So I know how, you know, if I didn't sleep until three, then I'll just sleep until 11 a.m. because I need that eight hours. And that means that another barrier is the perception that I must have eight hours. Uh, and so that's what I mean about realistic sleep expectations. Your brain is quite okay about getting by without eight hours every night. So, you know, and, and sleep, normal sleep is a range, you know, seven to nine hours and even a bit beyond that. There's a lot of people who feel very refreshed after five to six hours sleep. Uh, so, and there are uh, age changes in this too. So, So if we can recognize that we don't need to catch up on sleep by just sleeping in longer because your brain really wants to see that sunlight in the morning for, like I said, both its circadian clock and your mood. Um, So also that idea of um, a resistance to getting up during the night if we can't sleep. Uh, and we all know what this like this is like because we've all at some point been tossing and turning and willing ourselves to get back to sleep uh, when in fact what we should be doing is getting out of bed going to another room to give our central nervous system a chance to calm itself and just resetting and what this allows us to do is to reassociate our bed with sleep instead of forming a conditioned association of our bed with wakefulness and frustration and anxiety and tossing and turning whatever you practice you get good at in in uh, in relation to conditioned associations and if we condition a wakefulness and frustration association with our bed it tends to keep going and that's why people can't understand that after a period of stress is resolved this sleeplessness keeps on going but that is the conditioned association sort of cementing itself and that's what we need to train out of.
2: Uh, So if you get up in the middle of the night and you go somewhere else I'm assuming checking your phone is a bad idea what about uh, television (laughs) what are you supposed to do? is it have
1: a cup of tea? Yeah, yeah. That that's good. You could you could do that. Uh, you yeah, know, herbal teas or you know. I mean, uh, w- one thing that um, is quite nice for people is uh, just having a, a cup of warm milk or something. Anything um, or a light snack can help people feel calm and uh, and and feel like they're resetting so they can go back and have another another go at sleeping without trying and the main criteria for going back to your bed is actually going to be sleepiness it can't just be time-based if you have any residual strong emotion to we do not want that going back to the bed environment Um, so look if if one thing that's excellent for people getting out of bed and i know over at flinders university uh sleep center michael gretasar is experimenting with you know, how, how far do you have to go away from the bed? Uh, some people are actually able to read to get themselves back into sleep. They're, they're very efficient at doing that. Uh, and that's extremely calming for us because, you know, we have mastery, a sense of personal agency that I actually have some way to influence getting back into sleep. So one thing that's great about reading, say, um, either a Kindle or uh, like a paperback, Uh, with a book light is that it's a sustained narrative and you get to see your sleepiness cues come out again. So as you're reading uh, your book, you might find yourself losing your place. And as you lose your place, that it's probably going to be a micro sleep, right? So uh, three micro sleeps is an official entry for us back into our sleep. So, We need to take notice of those micro sleeps when they happen. When our eyelids are getting heavy, when we our head drops forward, and we just notice and jerk back as oh, I I must have been asleep there. Um, And it makes us realize just how dangerous micro sleeps are on the freeway at one hundred and ten kilometers an hour because we think we know we're about to fall into sleep, but we do not have a memory or awareness for the moment at which we fall asleep. That's why a micro sleep is so dangerous. But that's one of the things the sleep cues that we're asking you know teaching people to notice uh, at 2 a.m when you know they're out on the lounge and they're reading and you know we, we're trying to say okay this is your cue for going back into bed again. You're starting to fall asleep. You've lost your place three times. Okay, you, let's go back into bed now.
2: Um, you mentioned um, before not napping during the day. Is there any benefit to a twenty-minute power nap, or is that just? Mm,
1: yeah, look, many people. Yeah, many people describe a twenty-minute power nap as being enormously refreshing, and they have another burst of energy to keep working during the day. So that's fine. Um, as long as you know that you're pretty good at kind of keeping to 20 minutes before it goes down into deep sleep, right? If you found that every time that you did it, you know, it regularly turned into an hour and a half, then we're saying you've gone through a whole sleep cycle there and you've probably borrowed from the night's sleep. Now that's perfectly all right. If you want to train sleep one and sleep two, right? And, You know, we're seeing in um, American colonial records now that people regularly did have Sleep 1 and Sleep 2 before the advent of electric light. So, you know, people would fall asleep because they're producing melatonin uh, a lot. Um, You know, they're going to... Sorry, because they're producing melatonin as soon as it gets dark, the sleep hormone they um, would then fall asleep earlier and then they'd be awake earlier during the night as well. So they might fall asleep from say 8pm to 12am and then they'd get up, potter around for an hour or so, maybe even visit the neighbours. This was, And and then come back and they'd have sleep too from maybe 1 to 2am until 5am and then they'd get up and feed, you know, milk the cows. So, uh, sleep one and sleep two is you know it's it's said that before the advent of electric light, it's actually quite you know a normal sleep pattern. And if everyone is doing this, then it's not a cause for distress. Um, so sleep is eminently trainable. if you, you know we can train sleep one and sleep two and um, or we could train having a substantial nap in the afternoon and then going to bed later at night, like you could say the Italians and Spanish have done for a long time. Yeah, um, it's it's just about what you want to train.
2: What about um... Rose? You mentioned. Sorry,
0: Kev, you go. Oh no, I was going to change the topic and talk about myths. Uh, so the you, Rose, you mentioned the some myths are everyone needs to get nine hours, and and some people get hung up on, fixated on on the amount, and and others, um, you know, believe that you have to be in deep sleep the whole night. Whereas in reality, there's often some frequent wakings and the trick is how do we help people get back to that sleep? So you drift in and out of light and deep sleep. What are some of the common myths that you you see and and how do we dispel
1: them? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, one of these is that sleep is to blame for all my tiredness, basically. Um, These... And 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 we actually I actually do a sort of pie graph of causes of my tiredness when people first come in, and pretty much it's ninety nine percent my poor sleep is to blame, uh, you know, and uh, for my for all my tiredness. Now I I am actually saying I've heard this from both pregnant women and you know with insomnia and uh, patients with MS and patients with autoimmune uh, like issues and, and gut issues like Crohn's, all saying that they believe their sleep is uh, the cause of their tiredness. So one of the things that we look at is a a more nuanced picture of that. And we do a a, a second pie graph of possible causes of my tiredness. And we definitely include poor or short sleep in that as one of the slices of the pie. But we're also interested in looking at what other things could Be part of this picture so it's not such a black and white or all or nothing picture with sleep as the culprit because that's uh, that's actually a, a hard one to get by many people will say look I don't even care about the number of hours I sleep now I just don't want the tiredness right you know that's my holy grail and tiredness is quite a difficult thing to to uh to improve if someone has Labeled themselves as a, an ever tired individual. Like, I mean, there, there may be some really good medical reasons for their tiredness, and and this is why I, you know, we're, we're one of the things we do is ask them to talk with their doctor about, you know, possible causes for tiredness that could, you know, be. I mean, we if you look at the list of things, um, it's it's multitudinous. We're talking any heart. Blood, lung issues, blood sugar issues, uh, gut issues, autoimmune issues, um, pain, okay. chronic pain issues, um, anti uh, well, sorry, uh, post-viral fatigue, um, viruses like Ross River virus, Q fever, Epstein Barr. You know, we're talking so many reasons for tiredness um, that if if we do a you know like a, a, a semi-careful investigation of it the person can find many nuanced reasons for tiredness so they're less likely to put all the blame on sleep and try to fix that you know and and, and, and control it in a way that backfires Sorry. and you know kevin as a medical professional i can imagine you know <laughs> it's I know this is—it's a hard task because um, you know you can, yeah. You, you know, you, I'm sure you're aware of just how many medical issues you know involve tiredness. People's perceived tiredness. Absolutely.
0: We, I mean, we go through the all the different reasons and try to exclude them, mm-hmm. but as you say, I think that um, is a common understanding, which can um, sleep can be an easy blame. Um, And you put all the eggs into one basket and say, well, that's the issue. Whereas I think almost that mindset uh, in in itself becomes a barrier to thinking about other reasons, which are often quite fixable, or it's a passage of time if it's post-viral. But there there needs to be almost like a a slight mindset shift to being open to sleep being one of many factors. And then also uh, sleep can be addressable and can be improved. Uh, I think that often is a critical part to getting people to understand, mm. you know, sleep hygiene and, and what are the different and not just ask not just jumping to a sleeping tablet or,
2: or, or alcohol. Mm, yeah. One of the things we haven't spoken uh, about and is, also um, to... is exercise. It, it, does it help if you're teed up after work or whatever you're doing if you go and do some exercise and try and wear yourself out at the end of the day? Does that help?
1: Yeah, yeah, actually there have been a number of studies on that because they thought that uh, doing exercise early, early on, it was thought that exercise too late in the piece would then inhibit sleep or, you know, you'd have uh, too much adrenaline floating around the bloodstream so it would be much more difficult to get to sleep. Now, you know, Allah Michael Jackson, who was actually doing quite rigorous dancing up until 1am and then wanted to be asleep at 1.30am. But it also had to be said that, that, that this was an, an individual who was already very uh, hypervigilant about his sleep and already using multiple uh, substance measures to try to control it. Um, so for the, for the average person, if you, if you don't actually have performance about anxiety about sleep and you don't have your know, hypervigilance built up around it, then you could very well exercise, you know, quite late in the piece, maybe, you know, nine, it's all worth experimenting on, but, you know, do some uh, three weeks of exercise at 9pm and then see if your sleep is affected compared to doing, you know, your exercise at 10, you know, finishing at 10pm and seeing if your sleep onset is affected. Um, Because increasingly in a number of studies, they're finding that it doesn't make a difference. The main thing that makes a difference is, is not having the performance anxiety about sleep and the sleep effort that uh, that creates more hypervigilance and threat threat appraisal. So, yeah, um, yeah. Look, I mean, and just just alongside that, we all know of many people, many Europeans, for instance, who will have a coffee at eleven p.m. at night after dinner, and then they can fall asleep within half an hour. Or, or and, and this is something that suggest real confidence in their sleep uh so they just don't yeah they just don't have performance anxiety about sleep you know because I, i and conversely i have many people who've uh who are following all the sleep hygiene measures to a T and they no longer drink caffeine or the, their only drink of caffeine would be at 9am and then nothing further for the rest of the day. Um, but they have severe performance anxiety about sleep and they're in almost a panic state as they they get to sleep at night or, or they're going to bed at night. So it's it's more about the 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 sleep effort, as uh, Professor Colin Espy at Glasgow University's uh, sleep clinic would describe it, once you put in sleep effort, then suddenly the performance anxiety starts up.
2: So the best thing we can do is Um, just relax and not worry about it.
1: Well, um, if if we are worried about it, then there are certainly uh, some excellent strategies that we can use to train ourselves out of that worry uh, and it, uh, excellent ways of reframing, great ways of gathering, gathering evidence that disconfirms our fear uh, about our brain not being able to self-regulate sleep. So there's there's a great deal we can do to help people with that.
0: I did want to ask Rose, who sleeps very well, like who's considered best practice in 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 this top in this area? Is it? a certain age group, are there certain cultures, like, as you say, the Spanish who take a siesta? Um, Is it the, I grew up in the country, so, you know, is it the farmer that just doesn't even think about sleep, but just works really uh, uh, well during the day, has a lot of uh, outdoor time, and, you know, builds up that sleep wave? Or is it those that kind of, um, you know, pays attention to it in the right way and gets help through your website or the Sleep Health Foundation? There's various apps, I suppose, like Sleepio that can help people with with their sleep. But you know, tracking it in the in the right way, what are what are considered good practices here?
1: Yeah, well, it's an interesting question actually, because like theory, just as you said, you know, because these people are getting you know, some they're out active in sunlight during the day. These are all the things that help our serotonergic neurotransmission, which all help us to you know, because our pineal gland will use that serotonin to manufacture melatonin, sleep hormone. As soon as it gets dark so theoretically these people should have an excellent uh initiation into sleep you know it's very sleep conducive those daytime activities um but we all know that there are high rates of depression in rural populations the and high and and so what that of itself means is that there's going to be sleep difficulties because uh, insomnia and depressive illness is so comorbid. Uh, So, so I believe that it's less um, uh, cultures in comparison or it's it's less interculture than intraculture difference or variability because every country every culture has good and struggling sleepers it can relate to the personality characteristics of a person if a person is more control oriented they're more sort of doing versus being person. Um, they're, you know, perfectionism and unrelenting standards. You know, when when sleep is the one thing we cannot have perfectionism about because as soon as we have, we start trying to control it and, you know, perfect it and then it gets worse, you know, um, or we become hypervigilant about it. So, you know, in every culture, uh, urban and rural environments, uh, disparate, Socioeconomic status, strata, you know, there there are going to be people who can just value sleep and let it happen and ignore it, you know, because and then and night by night they will see evidence that their brain knows exactly what it's doing. You know, once, once, you know, every six months or something, they might have a poor, you know, bad night's sleep, but they're just they'll drift, you know, they just go past that and, and it's not going to continue to worry them. Um, so You know, there are always people in any culture who value value sleep and create enough opportunity for it. And there's always going to be people in every culture who overvalue sleep and become overprotective of it with excessive sleep effort. Um, So, I think the hopeful thing to remember about this is just as we can inadvertently train into insomnia. Um, and it can, it can happen to any of us if we have a period of, you know, high stress uh, mm. and like I said, it can keep, you know, if it becomes conditioned during that period of high stress, it can keep rolling on after the stress is resolved. Um, but I really would like to end with the note that as just as we can inadvertently train into insomnia, we can learn about sleep and ultimately train ourselves out of insomnia with cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, The evidence is really strongly accumulated now that cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia works, and it does not take many sessions. We're just talking four to six sessions. If people are willing to do the homework tasks in reassociating their bed with sleep, um, then it it will work. Uh, And this is even after 10 to 20 years of insomnia conditioning. So there's a lot to be optimistic about with sleep. Um, and and it's kind of hiding in plain sight because the brain has always been there in the background taking care of, uh, you know, our circadian drive and our homeostatic drive. So, uh, you know, it really unchanged from 40,000 years ago when we didn't have medications like it or, uh, um, you know, or, Valium
0: or um, any any of those sleep medications. So so there is there is hope and there's help if you do you know have sleep issues. Um, there are ways to um, you know optimize your lifestyle and your routines every day to even prevent some of those issues in the first place. Mm. And you don't have to turn to you know medications or, or alcohol to to get good sleep. Um, I'm certainly one of those that you know can take. I work home and think about what I need to do the next day. Um, I just have very simple um, uh, tips, like to write anything down that I meant to be uh, focusing on the next day. If I'm worried about it and I'm in bed, if I write it down, I almost feel like I've at least parked it. So i excellent. It.
1: Excellent. Yes, that kind
0: of gives me a bit of a release, and then it often helps. Just simple things like that.
1: Um, Excellent. Yeah, I mean, this is a really good idea, Kevin. This is just having a little notepad by the side of the bed and just writing some keywords on it. Um, you don't even have to put the light on, you know, you just <laughs> keep your eyes closed and just pick up the pen and write a few keywords because you, in the morning, you look at those and most probably think, look, this is really a non-issue, <laughs> but, you know, I mean... If you think about how many times have we written notes and then thought, well, I don't even know why I was worrying about that. Um, but you know, it, it it really does help us to kind of. I, I talk to people about it as being like uh, external storage. You know, we just pop it into external storage and then, you know, we'll, let's return to it in just a few hours because. I can't think lucidly about this at 2 a.m., but I can sure think lucidly about it at 6 a.m. I can problem solve it in 10 minutes at 6 a.m., and it's going to take me a whole hour now at 2 a.m. So what magic is going to happen at 2 a.m. now that I can't resolve at 6? You know. <laughs> so part, you know, you can actually train worry, you know, to 6 a.m. You know, that's one of the things that we look at with worry training session.
0: Wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much, Rose. That was uh, tremendous. You know, lots of great tips. Uh, Maybe we could just end on, um, would you like to share with listeners, um, you know, your website, which is Let Sleep Happen, uh, what resources you provide and, and where to turn to for help if if those, you know, are affected by their sleep?
1: Yeah. Thanks. Um, Yeah. Look at my, I've, um, or I, uh, sorry, i (sighs) The CBT uh, website Let Sleep Happen has all the core evidence-based strategies that we use to help people at the Sydney Sleep Centre to overcome uh, insomnia. It, uh, there's lots to read about. Uh, you can read about the, you know any frequently asked questions that many people have about sleeping and waking, uh, and about how to overcome insomnia. Uh, and yeah, uh, and and it gives a uh, Sorry. That's, That's our okay. now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. It's uh, just a, a place to kind of, yeah, uh, do some, yeah, core reading about uh, the, the things that work in treating insomnia.
2: Well, I didn't really know much oh, about, oh, I had a feeling about some things that worked for me, but it was great to hear it from you um, and, and, and get a, a real understanding of what's going on there. I think that sort of helps relieve the anxiety a bit is understanding what's going on
1: yeah yeah and that it's all kind of completely it's completely normal the waking at night is is normal and uh it, it's it's only kind of our effortful responses to it that get us tied up in knots unfortunately because we do tend to overthink things as humans so <laughs> so all the time yeah we're we're we can make things more complicated than they really are so
0: we'll keep it simple okay so uh with that we'll we'll um wind up so thank you again um uh rose and um we'll be sort of promoting this with with your website so thanks again
1: thank you very much Thanks, thanks
2: kevin thanks saxon thanks